Okay, good morning, everyone. I'll be, I'll be reading from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through to 4, verse 5. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jombres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured? Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Steve. I have the wonderful privilege of uh, opening up this passage uh, before us today. Um, the only thing is my bottle of water got drank dry by my son, <laughs> so I'm going to be a little bit cotton mouth potentially. Um, he also had four weepings this morning. I think he's a growing kid. Um, but I'm going to start uh, by praying to God uh, because I need just as much help with this uh, to teach it to you as we do need to understand it. Father God, we thank you for this morning. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, be with us all. I pray that your spirit would be at work uh, revealing what you have to say to us through your word in 2 Timothy today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Well, there's a common uh, idiom that we sometimes use uh, when someone has something very simple to do, uh, but also is rather important. But what happens is they end up failing, either due to the pressure on them or to a lapse in concentration of sorts. Uh, A brief moment of weakness, uh, where in the right circumstances, leads to a major failure. Uh, We call this choking or a failure to keep your head. We see this when competitors in the Olympics uh, make one small mistake. Uh, You might often see this in those Kath and Kim style walking races, you know, swinging the hips and everything. They take one tiny leap, both feet leave the ground, disqualified. Knee bends slightly at the front when they land, disqualified. A small mistake can instantly disqualify them from the race. However, sometimes these small lapses in judgment uh, can amount to the things that are even more serious than this. Uh, In 1962, uh, there was an unmanned rocket that NASA sent up called Mariner 1, and it exploded 293 seconds after its launch because a few minutes into its flight, uh, the range safety officer who overlooked uh, the coordinates of where this was going noticed that there was one small mistake in the coordinates. Uh, That is a hyphen was missing. So out of fears that it could possibly crash back to Earth, risking human lives, he decided to blow the entire thing up. And it ended up costing them about 673 million US dollars in what one journalist called the most expensive hyphen in history and is probably right. So these sorts of things happen when we fail to keep our heads in stressful situations, when we fail to remain uh, steady and sober-minded. As Christians, though, things are ratcheted up another notch. We're told to keep our heads in all situations, as we read in 2 Timothy 4, 5. Not to choke by ignoring sound teaching or the faithful witness of those that have gone before us. Not to lose our head by becoming obsessed with things that are secondary to the gospel itself. Because doing this can also result in catastrophic outcomes. So as of the 21st of May uh, next year, we'll be officially celebrating the 10th anniversary of Christ's non-return at least according to the predictions of the late Harold Camping. This is a man who created waves in 2011 for predicting that Christ was definitely going to return on the 21st of May 2011. And I remember this because I actually remember seeing billboards across Brisbane uh, about this event. It was making waves all around the world. Now, 10 years on, it's probably safe to say that Christ hasn't returned yet. But sadly, Harold is now known for his false end times predictions. But the question becomes, what caused him to do this? How did he lose sight of the gospel and so disgrace himself publicly? Well, I want to argue that this sort of thing happens when we stop thinking soberly. When the gospel truths that maybe our parents or our grandparents or friends had faithfully taught us in the beginning start to be sidelined because of obsessions over other issues, like, for example, the second coming. This happens when our self-control uh, and our biblical discipline start to wane, or as 2 Timothy 4, 5 puts it, when we don't keep our heads in all situations. You see, when we do keep our heads, the things we should be concerned with, as we'll soon see, are how to faithfully finish the race and how to keep the faith and how to pass on this to this good news for generations to come. These are the things that really should be at the top of our priorities and all else secondary to this.
So the final section, uh, as Steve said, it's a very big one. There's a lot in here, but it's precisely about this. It's the final push from an apostle who knows he's about to die to encourage his protege, Timothy, and ultimately all of us sitting here today to know how to keep our heads in all situations, how to be self-controlled and sober-minded, faithful in all things, so that we can finish the race and keep the faith and enable many generations after us to do the same. So as we work our way through uh, this final part of the letter, uh, we're going to be looking at three things which are in the outlines, uh, which you can get access to up on the screen there. We're going to be looking at, one, why we need to keep our heads in all situations, two, how we're to keep our heads in all situations, and three, what is at stake if we don't. So we're going to begin with the first one, why. Why we need to keep our heads in all situations. Well, the first uh, big answer to this question is in the opening verse uh, of the reading today, which reads, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. It's a very encouraging way to open uh, the chapter. Listen up, KPC. (laughs) Terrible things are going to happen. I guarantee it. Terrible times are coming. It's kind of like the words of a very stern teacher towards a student who's prone to wandering off. You know, mark my words, boy. Mark them well. Now, we don't know that Timothy was showing any signs of weakness uh, or losing his focus. In fact, he probably wasn't, uh, given Paul's glowing review of him uh, in chapter 1, verse 5. But Paul is absolutely aware of the dangers and temptations that exist all around him, tempting him to weaken the gospel message because of the threat of persecution, for example, or to teach what people want to hear and so have a flourishing ministry that's going really well based on a lie. In fact, there are things all around us every day uh, that tempt us, like Timothy, to compromise, to, to water down the message. But even more than this is that in these last days, according to verse 13, people are only going to go from bad to worse ministry for anyone is going to be downright difficult. And before we think we're immune to this, all we need to do uh, is look at the church abroad, all around the world, or even within our presbytery, to realise that the temptation is always at our doorstep. And so we need to keep our heads in all situations. Paul's message to us in verse 1 of this passage, that terrible things will come, that things will be very difficult for you, it is a stern but a necessary warning not to compromise the gospel in the face of anything. So having set the scene, uh, we're going to look at some of the specifics that are mentioned here about why it's going to be so difficult. First, uh, much of his warning actually stems around uh, false teachers. Right? The problem is that they, these false teachers, they're tricky to spot on occasion because they show all the outward signs of holiness. They look the part. If you look with me at verse 5 of chapter 3, the text says, Uh, that these so-called teachers have a form of godliness but deny its power. In other words, they're kind of like the Pharisee that Jesus talks about in the Gospels when he says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. I think if Paul was talking to these Pharisees today, he'd probably call them lovers of themselves as he does in 3 verse 2. You see, these are people that have an external form of godliness with no substance. 
As Jesus says, it's kind of like washing the outside of your stained cups and underneath your dirty plates and then eating off them. You know, where, where the grime of last night's lasagna is still evident and old milk from yesterday's flat white is kind of curdling in the bottom of the cup. Where bits of pasta that weren't rinsed off the night before have since hardened into little rocks and cockroaches have probably spent the night feasting on cold bits of leftover mints and fats, which have probably congealed by now. And then for whatever reason, you simply wipe the bottom of the plate and then hand it to your guests and claim that it's clean. It's a disgusting illustration, and yet this is exactly what Jesus and our text here in 2 Timothy is saying about these false teachers. They deny the power of the gospel. They do all the religious things. They, they look the part, but inwardly they're vicious and ferocious. Uh, that, that big list at the very beginning of the, read, uh, the reading today, verses 1 to 5, uh, it's there to highlight the types of attitudes that these false teachers have beneath the mask of godliness. And just like that awkward look on your guests' faces when you hand them this dirty plate with old bits of lasagna on it, well, these false teachers, they won't get very far because their folly will eventually be clear to everyone, as we read in 3 verse 9. The second thing I want to highlight from the text is that these false teachers, uh, they're also the ones who, in verse 7, are always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, being a a Bible college student, um, I've seen uh, a fair share of non-students fly in and fly out of our college when we've offered theological intensives uh, and electives to the general public. Uh, many of these are generally for people who love to chew on big ideas, they, they want to learn more, they want to be challenged to stretch their faith, uh, all of which are good things. But one afternoon, uh, before one of these intensives started, I was finishing class and about to head home, and I was stopped by a man who said to me, this is where the real gospel is. This is where real theology is taught. I don't get anything out of that basic stuff at church. The same gentleman, as it turned out, would go home and mistreat his wife and kids. You see, the problem here should be pretty obvious. Going to college does not guarantee to make any students or staff or the general public that come to these electives any godlier than the average person who goes to a faithful Bible-teaching church and lives a life of integrity. And yet this is the attitude that we see of some, always learning in 3.7, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. If you think that you'll grow as a Christian by attending masterclasses in theology, then you're absolutely mistaken. See, another way of saying this is to be wary of looking for rich, meaty theology at the expense of living consistent, godly lives in your local church. Now, the last thing I want to mention Um, about these false teachers before moving on to our second point um, is that these imposters or evildoers, as the text says, will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived themselves in verse 13. There's a sense in which they not only misdirect other people but also themselves. Now, I'm not going to labour this point too much um, except to throw out there for all of my favourite youth groupies out there. All I want you to do is look back at the last verse of chapter 2 and see if you can tell me who might be deceiving these false teachers or trapping them, as Paul says. And then in your own time, at some point later, uh, check out the first few verses of Genesis chapter 3, right at the beginning, 
uh, and see how many lies you can spot coming from both the serpent in the garden, but also Eve. You see, deception, it's one of the standard tricks in Satan's playbook. He's known for deception all throughout the scriptures, and people often follow suit. It's a self-feeding cycle. Uh, Last week, Steve mentioned Bishop Spong, a gentleman who denied the physical resurrection of Jesus. Uh, This week in the introduction, I mentioned Harold Camping, who falsely claimed that Jesus was guaranteed to return in 2011. These types of people will always be around. And in fact, they'll only get worse as time goes by. And this is why, as Christians, we need to keep our heads in all situations. So now we've seen the why. Uh, We're going to move to point two and have a look at the how, how we are to keep our heads in all situations. Now, the way this works out uh, in this text is through two solutions uh, that overlap and make up a third solution, kind of like a Venn diagram, you know, those circles that kind of merge and they've got a section in the middle. So the answer to how we keep our heads, well, on the one side, the one circle, we have people that are good and faithful examples. Uh, These are the ones that can keep their heads in all situations and are good examples for us to learn from. On the other side, we have the scriptures, and the scriptures teach and rebuke and correct and train in righteousness. But in the middle, where the two meet, we have the faithful teaching of the scriptures by the good examples in our lives. So the three methods for how we keep our heads is, one, following someone who's a good example, two, the scriptures themselves, and then the faithful teaching of these scriptures as the third one. I hope that's clear. Maths wasn't really ever a strong point, and I just like to use the term Venn diagram because it kind of makes me sound smart. So we're going to start with the first one, uh, following good examples. Um, I remember growing up, um, I had the wonderful blessing of having uh, very faithful parents. Uh, I remember seeing them reading their Bibles rather frequently. Uh, Early in the morning, mum would be sitting up in her bed with the bedside lamp on, uh, reading her Bible, and dad would often be somewhere in the dining room doing the same. The scriptures were a staple uh, in both of their diets. Uh, My parents also led uh, by example. So they lived lives that demonstrated what it meant to know the grace of God. Uh, They did this by often giving up their time and their money and their efforts uh, sacrificially for those around us, uh, but also encouraging us, their kids, to do the same, uh, which we often did as we were forced to, grumbling as we went. It's just funny because as kids, (laughs) we don't see how living for anyone other than ourselves really benefits us in any way. Now, I can't speak for my brothers, um, but I didn't really understand until much later in life the ramifications of what my parents were trying to do. They were doing everything they could to be a godly example of gospel faithfulness to us and to all those around them. Now, this example isn't a cookie-cutter example. I'm not advising that all parents force their kids to do charitable things. Uh, It can definitely backfire, and I've seen it. But for my parents, for me, these were the examples in my life that I can look back on, the examples of people where I have learnt how to keep my head through their example. And in the text, Paul tells Timothy very similar things. He says, continue in faithfulness, knowing from those from whom he learnt it, in verse 14. It's very important for us 
to look at people in our lives who have faithfully lived and taught the gospel. Specifically in 2 Timothy 3.14, Paul, when he says, remember those who have faithfully taught you, he's talking about himself here. But he continues by talking about how Timothy had known the scriptures from his infancy, from when he was a tiny little bub. And this is almost certainly a reference to Timothy's mother Eunice and grandmother Lois that we see introduced back in chapter 1, verse 5. So the first step in how we keep our heads in all situations is to look at good examples in our own lives and to follow their example of faithfulness. Secondly, we keep our heads by being equipped through the scriptures themselves, which rebuke, teach, correct, and train us in righteousness, according to 3.16. Now, this is a really interesting verse, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, because uh, it's often very commonly used as a memory verse uh, and for good reason. Uh, though it's often used as a proof text for Christians, right? We use this verse to demonstrate that all of the Bible is inspired by God, not just bits of it, the whole thing. Now, this is true, and it's a good verse to memorize for that, but in context, uh, it's written more in relation to the dangers of false teachers, these teachers who deceive and are being deceived, who go from bad to worse, who are always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. It's more concerned, in other words, with how to help us navigate the terrible times in the last days that are full of false teachings. It's here to say that the faithful reading of scriptures will guide our steps and will rebuke those who have misused them. Now, thirdly, as we mesh the two together, we keep our heads by continuing to live in accordance with the teaching of the scriptures that have been faithfully passed down to us. You see, it's one thing to have good examples and one thing to have scripture at our disposal independently of each other. But it's another thing altogether to have the truth faithfully merged. And as Christians, we really need both. This is why we can't, uh, for example, separate ourselves from growth groups or church and think that we'll be right on our own as long as we have the Bible under our arms. God has given us each other and the scriptures to help iron sharpen iron. You see, we need each other just as much as we need the scriptures. In other words, there's no such thing as a Christian lone ranger. So these three things, uh, faithful examples around us, the scriptures and the teaching of the scriptures by the faithful examples in the middle, they all help us to keep our heads and not go astray in these last days. And so that brings us down uh, to the last point uh, on the outline there. Uh, where we really get to the crunch, the so what of the passage. Right, point three, what is at stake here? So why does this matter? What's really at stake? See, if we take a step back and see the hyper-personal side of this letter for a minute, it's really a letter, 2 Timothy, that is a passing of the baton. Now, I'm sorry to use a running analogy here, um, but I can't avoid it. The, the text is full of running and athletics analogies, and I haven't been told I'm not allowed to use them yet, so I'm going to milk that opportunity for all it's worth. The letter is a passing of the baton. Okay, it's a man that has run his part of the race, and now it's time for him to pass on the responsibility to the next generation. Specifically, this is a letter from an older man who has spent 30 years of his life consistently preaching the same gospel, planting and encouraging churches and being persecuted for the faith, yet pressing on in faithful witness 
to the risen Lord Jesus anyway. It's a letter from a man who knows he's about to die, who is about to be martyred, and we see proof of this in verse 6. See, Paul tells Timothy, for I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. He's run the race and he's kept the faith, and now it's time for him to pass on the baton. However, Timothy, the man is passing it to, he's not just anybody either. Timothy is someone who's personally seen the types of persecution that Paul went through. Uh, in fact, I was saying to Steve last week, this, this letter is littered with people's names and places and other things like that. And we get the town of Lystra mentioned in verse 11. Well, Lystra was Timothy's hometown, as we see in Acts 14. And it's in Lystra as well that we read in Acts 14 that Paul was nearly killed by an angry mob who tried to stone him to death. In fact, the only reason they stopped hurling stones is because they thought he was dead, and so they dragged his limp, lifeless body out of the city. And this serves as a very public and graphic reminder to Timothy, who may have seen this with his own eyes, not to give up on this calling. Paul's saying, Timothy, you've seen everything that's happened to me from a very early age. You've seen how serious things can get but don't bail out now. I'm about to die. In the midst of this present and coming distress, remain firm. Keep your head in all situations. And then to quote Paul directly in 4.1, he says, but now in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. The beginning of chapter 4 here, it's an official changing of the guard and read in its context with Paul's knowledge that his time, the time of his departure is near, uh, it really should hit us in the heartstrings a little bit. But the real clincher, even bigger than this, is that this is exactly what has happened generation after generation for the last 2,000 years, which is why we are able to sit in this room and hear the word faithfully taught up to this day. You see, faithful men like Paul and Timothy, faithful women like Lois and Eunice, in God's good sovereignty, they are the human means through which God works and keeps the church going generation after generation. Now, I know it might be hard to believe, uh, but one day, uh, Steve Blanco, who's going to have to pass on the KPC mantle. Probably not to me. I'm not trying to hint that at all, but to someone. And even though I'm so much younger than Steve, eventually wherever I end up, I'm going to have to do the same. And so will all of you here today. But the thing that really matters in all this is that by God's grace, you keep your heads in all situations and remain focused on finishing the race and passing on the faith through your faithful witness and remaining in the scriptures which guide you on your way. There'll be plenty of opposition uh, on this journey, and if we live a godly life in Christ Jesus, then persecution will be part and parcel of it all, according to verse 12. Now, it doesn't mean we go looking for persecution or that we won't have periods of relative peace in our lives, 
But if we live godly lives in Christ Jesus, the guarantee is that they will come. Because if they hated Jesus, they're going to hate you. Uh, Persecution might come in the form of, uh, for example, career limitations, our duty of faith. Standing up for Jesus in the workplace or not joining in the rest of them by cheating those few extra minutes on your timesheet. Well, these things can and do cost you every day. Refusal uh, to praise the latest progressive talking point like abortion or anything else can cost you, not only career-wise, but friendship-wise as well. Speaking of, living for Jesus may cost you friendships when you decide, for example, not to get drunk at that party or to join in on the latest gossip, which destroys not only the person you're gossiping about, but also you yourself. But even amongst Christians, right, making it even closer to home, keeping our heads is important because it means not stumbling into myths or getting lost or bogged down with things that are secondary to the gospel. Not becoming obsessed with the timing of Jesus' second coming, for example, or even getting bogged down into thinking that uh, social justice or environmental issues are the gospel while never, ever speaking about Jesus. If we entertain these myths long enough, they do deceive us, and eventually they will lead us astray. If we forget the prime importance of running the race, we risk disqualifying ourselves. So today, in this message, what I want to do is encourage you all to keep your head in all situations. We do this by following the good examples of faithful people around us. We do this by reading our Bibles regularly, which will teach, rebuke, correct, and train us in righteousness. And we do this by having our hearts moulded by the faithful teaching of the Scriptures through these good examples in our lives. Because if you do these things, you will be able to, as 4.5 says, endure hardship. You will be able to do the work of an evangelist and to discharge all the duties of your ministry. You will be able to finish the race and keep the faith. And in God's sovereignty, ultimately, this will result in the faithful proclamation of the gospel that salvation is only found in Jesus by the grace of God for the next generation and the next one and the next one, and many to come. This is what it means for you to keep your heads in all situations. Why don't you join with me and let's pray. Father God, thank you for Second Timothy. Well, we thank you for the stern warnings it contains, but the encouragement to keep our heads in all situations. Father, I pray that you would bring to every one of us what we need to do to encourage one another to look at the good faithful examples in our lives, to cling to them and to cling to your word, which proclaims Jesus' death and resurrection for our sins. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.